If you or a loved one has a hoarding problem, let's work together on a solution. Actually, let me take a Thank you for out, but... stopping by the um, Hoarding Solution podcast. I'm very happy today to have Cece Garrett with us, who is a licensed clinical social worker and therapist and has a lot of experience around this issue of hoarding and um, being resilient and coming through that experience and being able to take what you know and help others. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Tammy. It's an honor to be here and to share a little bit more about my experiences and what I do with your listeners. So I, I very much appreciate the work you have done and are continuing to do to represent those of us who have survived the horde, <laughs> those of us who have somehow come around and are using what we know now to try to help others and families and just shine a light on this issue. So I'd love to know more about, you know, what's your personal story around this, you know, and just tell us what, what pieces are important to you to make sure people understand this, this part of your journey. Well, um, as you mentioned, you know, this is kind of a personal thing. So yes, I am a a clinical social worker, psychotherapist, um, and I work in the community really specializing in hoarding disorder, but also in family support for those who have either a parent or a loved one who hoards. Um, but it is really a personal story. So I grew up with a, a single mother who, um, in addition to hoarding, because you know comorbid disorder, um, had some other pretty significant mental illnesses, um, bipolar, which was not diagnosed till I was in my 30s, and she was nearly 70. So um, kind of the scope looking back as a 33-year-old at my childhood through the lens of my mom has bipolar disorder makes a lot of the things that happened there um, make more sense. But there were a lot of other things. Uh, my mom went through a series of uh, Munchausen or factitious disorder. Um, there was seasons where that actually then was even turned to me. Um, so just some some really kind of uh, exciting moments in, in life. Um, beside the fact that we lived in a house where nobody else was coming. Nobody's coming into that house. You know, um, as a child, I would play with other people at their houses, the playground, but let's be clear, nobody was coming to my house to play. And so kind of this different sense um, culturally of what it's like to be a child in the American culture in the early eighties, you know, um, I didn't have birthday parties. I didn't have slumber parties. Um, I did have a very small window in middle school where we had um, our house on the market and the HOA was involved where it was clean enough that we had a couple of people over, but generally, you know, when we were home, it was just us. Um, you didn't answer the door if somebody mysteriously showed up and, um, you know, there was this internalized language that, and this really points to some of my others, my mother's other mental illnesses, uh, she would say things like, if it weren't for you, um, if I hadn't kept you, cause I was an unplanned pregnancy. So some extra levels of fun there mm -hmm. of this internalized message that if it weren't for me, and in fact, I do remember my mom saying at least once, maybe only once, but it was significant enough that it stuck with me. If I weren't a single mom, and if you weren't so involved in all of these things, 
our house would be clean. Mm. And, and so, so again, like I know for sure it happened once and it may, you know, the way our memories work, it may have only been said once, but it really hit me in the place where I was the most sensitive that I was to blame. And so I spent my childhood, my teen years, even my adult years, believing that in fact, the only way that this would get changed, even though I didn't have language for it, mm-hmm. was if I somehow was able to fix my mom. Um, and so then, you know, pop up forward to, you know, 2009, um, A&E is starting this really shocking series called Hoarders. Um, and I'm, I'm middle of summer, all my kids are home, my husband's home. And this clip comes up on the Today Show of Jen and Ron, and they have two precious little kids, and then they zoom into their home. And I'm literally standing in the middle of my living room, looking at my big screen TV, absolutely trauma triggered, unable to speak. And my kids are like, what's wrong, mommy? What's wrong? My husband's like, what's going on? And I said, you know, when I found a word, this is what my house was like when I grew up. Mm. And it was the first time I'd heard this language of hoarding and hoarders. Ironically, you know, that's, you know, Monday, that following Friday, all hell breaks loose in my mom's house with her health condition. Mm. I'm actually watching a couple of episodes on demand through Comcast while my husband's at work and my older kids are with their dad. And my mom takes a deep dive, goes into sepsis. I, for the first time in my life, tell somebody that my mom's a hoarder and that I don't know what's going to be inside the house. I know what it was like two years ago and it wasn't very good, but I don't actually know, but to go in and not to leave until they find the body, expecting her to be dead. Um, And also having this awareness of, oh my gosh, it's all going to be my problem. I'm going to have to clean up the house. Um, Short story, you know, like take a long story, condense it. Um, I get the dream. Uh, We end up through a series of uh, coincidences and um, blind find luck or providence, if you would, um, connected with Matt Paxton prior to even the first episode of Hoarders that he did being aired. So when we connected with him, we had no idea that he was doing the show. Um, but we, we get connected to him and he says, hey, I think, I think the producers would like to do the story. I think they'd be really interested in it. And so we went public, um, had the dream team. You know, we had five guys. We had dumpsters. We had completely paid for. We had psychological support for my mother and myself. Uh, we, they covered moving my mother's possessions across the country when we relocated her. Um, all the things that... I thought I needed and wanted, need to fix my mom. And months later, you know, my mom's getting care. She's managed. She's not collecting. She's not going shopping. Things seem pretty good. And I'm in my house alone and a clean house, a very meticulously clean house where I don't let anybody come in unless it's super clean. Um, and I'm broken. And I'm completely baffled why I feel so bad because I fixed the problem. I saved my mom from her hoarding. 
and having this realization that I didn't feel good. I didn't feel like this was resolved. And I, I don't even think in that moment that I really understood really the scope of what, what had happened to me as a child and the messages throughout my whole life that I somehow was responsible for my mom's situation and that fixing that, cleaning the house was never going to take care of the emotional and psychological abuse and neglect that her hoarding had induced in my life. And coming to this point of, I'm actually a lot, the same kind of parent she'd been, harsh and critical, distant, and not liking myself, not feeling better, and being desperate for change. And the, the one gift that the psychologist who sat with us as we were filming for Hoarders gave me was, I don't care what happens this weekend for your mom, you must get your own counseling. And thanks to the producers, I had funds for that. I didn't have to worry about it. I went and I started that process and um, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. And in fact, I, I would bet if you went back and talked to the counselor, my first couple of sessions, all I did was talk about my mom. It wasn't until much later that I really recognized, like, I need to start talking about me because there's some really hurt, broken pieces, a little girl who needed a place to play, who needed friends to come in. She needed to be seen. She needed to be more important than her mother's things. And those were things that my mom couldn't do for me. I was going to have to go back and do for myself. Nobody was coming to do that work for me. I think that's the piece that is missed is the the trauma and the experiences that the child has at growing up in that situation. You carry that with you everywhere you go until you get to the point where you start to realize that you have things <laughs> that you literally need to unpack so that you will be okay. And I in that messaging, I call it kind of like a societal messaging that we're here to fix our parents is inherent in the conversations that people bring to us. Even as adults, you need to do this. You need to fix this. How can you let your parent live this way? There's just this continuing guilt cycle in addition to the isolation that you feel or we feel growing up where no one can come in. You hide from the doorbell. You we call it doorbell dread like that's right. a real thing <laughs> and but I I feel that and I know in my own experiences that when I first started talking about that that hoarding situation it was focused on them and their issues and what was happening with my parents and it took a bit for me to go oh huh <laughs> how did this impact me how, how did that social isolation how did that judgment um, impact me and how does it impact me till even to this day like you mentioned your house can be clean but people aren't coming in unless it's super clean <laughs> right well and it's a really interesting thing because um you know as I look back and I'm like why why didn't I why didn't I realize that this had an impact on me and in fact the reality is between the society's expectations that we take care of our parents and I'm not saying that's wrong I think especially as our parents age their capacity to take care of themselves declines, we do at, in seasons have to intervene. But I think that it, it, that view can be distorted and 
put children who were never children. So I don't know about your experience, but I can tell you from about the time I was eight, I was making really grown up decisions because my mom was not emotionally capable of making those decisions. Um, and, and I remember my mom even thanking me for taking a very horrible phone call that I should not have had to take. Mm. I mean, you know, um, and so, so we get this idea, you know, that these cultural norms are not necessarily bad, but we one size fits all of them. Mm. This is the thing that culture has been doing and, and we got to We got to stop doing it. Like, Sometimes the most loving gift you can give your parent is to say, this isn't my problem and I'm not going to fix it for you. And in fact, it's never been my problem and my wounds are too deep for me to show up. It's like, um, I like talking about the family tree and a broken branch. So the reality is once you strengthen that branch, then it can tolerate the weight of other branches laying on it. You know, you see, right. I think like the big, um, what are they, the um, weeping willows. So you can lay a lot of weight onto a branch, but if that branch is damaged and you lay additional weights on it, it is going to break. And this is kind of what happened for me is I was the branch that was broken because I didn't get the things I needed as a child, the things that rightfully I should have had and I was trying to carry the weight of my mom's wounds as well and even when I seemed to get those managed and took that weight off what I'd done was actually just further damaged myself and so we have to kind of come back and recognize we weren't given the right to say I need something it's like our needs did not exist uh, frequently and that's I do feel as we were talking a little before about the continuum like there is um, we have parallel experiences but there are people who have much further greater trauma than say I did or that you did or you know maybe their lives didn't get weird until t eighth grade um, but I do feel like on that continuum there is a need to recognize that people have been traumatized and I feel like that societal expectation is what's getting in the way all the time of looking at this in a uh through a different lens of hey what does this person actually need what is actually happening in this family dynamic and you cannot and I want to interrupt because yeah. one of the things that's the most frustrating for me as a trained therapist is this trauma-informed lens that we you know in in current psychotherapy, everything we do is supposed to be through a trauma-informed lens. And here's one of the things that's really interesting. And um, this is where being an adult child who also works with hoarding disorder and talks to adult children, I have some insight. Um, and it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't get why other people don't get it, but I'm going to share it because I do get it. And I think it's so critical. When an adult child comes to me wanting to help their parent, I recognize that through a trauma-informed lens, they may not have ever had anybody support that they have needs. And I will first say where, and we had a conversation before we started, you know, where's the person who has the problem? When that person comes and asks for my help, I am very cautious 
because I recognize the impacts of trauma that are probably in this person's past, not necessarily, but I'm going to always lead in do no harm. This person may have enough trauma either from their childhood home or outside experiences because they were seeking escape from their childhood home that in fact, they don't have the language to ask for what they actually need. And so the first conversation is to look at what are their needs? Where do they have unmet needs? Because if I don't recognize that first and I go into here, let me teach you how to be a supportive coach. I'm actually doing more harm than I'm ever helping. And I believe that that is a misunderstanding, shall we say, (laughs) when other professionals reach out to that adult child or that adult kid saying, hey, you need to come do this. And there is no awareness of the do no harm aspect within that conversation. And so I think that's a very valuable piece to recognize what does the person asking for the help actually need? And it's very likely they don't need to be involved with that situation or they can be a little more removed once they start looking at what their needs are, what your boundaries are, what what limits do you have that are going to force you to either be re-traumatized um, if you go forward with it or what can you do to not be re-traumatized you know maybe it's a handoff maybe it's a hey I know this professional organizer or I know this person in this area that does hauling or like there are ways to kind of hand it off so that you are supporting but not emotionally overly involved and I know you've got a workbook around this very issue around how do you, how do you navigate this? What do you, what do you do if you do see the need for intervention? And I will also add, usually it's the person that hoards that does not see the need for intervention. (laughs) That clutter blindness, that denial of how extreme the problem actually is, which to me is one of the more frustrating pieces of starting any part of these kind of projects. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually kind of funny because you say that and um, in my professional experience, though, I've been working exclusively with hoarding disorder and people in the community around that. So those who self-recognize, family members, um, ser- social service organizations. Um, and it's actually interesting because I do see that there are some who really truly any insight. And then again, we look at it as a comorbid disorder. So we have to recognize that even hoarding disorder, the treatments for hoarding disorder cannot be a one size fits all because we have to look at those other mitigating factors. So is this person schizoaffective? Does this person have bipolar disorder? Does this person, is this person living in constant flashbacks and hypervigilance associated with PTSD from something in their own life. And so we have to kind of look at that. I actually do specialize and people told me you can never just treat those with hoarding disorder. 90% of my clients are people with hoarding disorder. Mm. And of those, all of them have insight. I don't, I um, too many families 
uh, chagrin. I do not force my way into a home or into someone's life. Um, and I'm happy to work with adult children. And it's really interesting how many of them are uh, secondhand or second generation, third generation, where this um, this disorder now is, this has been what's learned. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. Um, I have had moments where I've had to go, okay, wait, this isn't healthy um, because I want, I have no attachment to things. Very few things do I have strong attachment to. Um, my husband hates this story because he thinks it's cliche. And I don't think, I think he gets it, but uh, the thing that he would want me never to get rid of is my wedding ring. And um, there actually was a season after all the intervention with my mom that we'd made decisions prior to hoarders um, coming in and paying for the cleanup um, that put us in a financial bind. And it, there was a season where I talked about suddenly my wedding rings and my husband was absolutely horrified. And I said, it's just metal and diamonds. If it's, if we can sell it to take care of this problem, I, I don't need it. It doesn't signify our commitment and our love. And I use that because I think it's something that culturally, like most of us get that that's a pretty big thing. Right. And it kind of highlights how much I'm like, no, it's just a tool. I don't need to keep it. It's great. It's pretty like, I'll be honest. I have a really pretty set. I really like, I, I'm getting to a point now where I'm like, no, I wouldn't sell my rings. You know, I, I might think about it, but I would probably pull back. But there have been seasons in my life where because of my brokenness, I couldn't form an attachment to things. And I had a moment actually in an extended family member's home visiting them. They had moved since I was a child and it was the first time visiting them in their new residence. And I had this awareness that if I had walked in and they weren't there, I would know it was their home because there were things there that had been in their home when I was a child mm -hmm. that I would have been like, Oh, that's so-and-so is. Oh yeah. It's definitely like, I see that. And I had this realization that I was at the other end of the spectrum and I have children who are going to someday go, maybe they don't want my stuff, but they want to show up to my house and be able to go. This is, this is our, this is our family's home. Even if it's not the same building that there's something that ties. And so kind of this ability to come, you know, more centrally um, and to see, you know, how we internalize those messages of childhood. Like to me, that was too catastrophic. Reject the stuff. I can get rid of anything. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can't become like that. Um, but others found that was what was demonstrated as their soothing, their ability to manage life. Let's, let's go get something new. Mm -hmm. And in fact, remember fondly shopping trips with my mom we did them every day which you know apparently is not culturally normal I don't know <laughs> who knew right <laughs> well and you kind of grow up with that whole thing and and I want to touch on also where I I have talked with people who do have insight into their issue but they don't know who to talk to they don't know where to go because they're ashamed they're afraid their kids will get taken away they're um uh, you know, uh, there, there's this, this aspect, or they're afraid they're going to be evicted if the landlord comes in to fix the broken water heater or the leaking toilet. And so there's a fear there, I think that comes up more than, uh, than anything. It's a fear of what will happen if they address it versus never addressing it. And that fear could still end you up in a bad place. Um, but I, I think that you, that, 
I, and as you're talking about your ring and and that um like I could just let it go um I, I've kind of when I moved last year I kind of went through a similar thing I, I just I'm just gonna let it go like I don't want to look at it anymore I don't want to deal with it and um I just don't I have much less attachment to my stuff now um uh, than I ever did with that whole process and even I will say even on my worst day ever of not cleaning my house or not being organized it was ne still never at right. the level of what I grew up with when with things all over the counter and not wanting people to come in and um just you know it was still never at that level but there's always that awareness you know like do I have enough of this do I have too much um I don't want it I continually have like a donation bag ready to go and I'm constantly adding things to that and and I did not see that as a kid I never witnessed that I just started when I started working with clients I was like hey this is this thing I do I don't know when I did started it but here here's another tool where you know we get your space into shape and now you want to keep it that way right because you just spent time and money and tears to get to here and so here's some ways to, to keep it that way. And um, I think that people are afraid to reach out because they don't know what the result's going to be. And then they do reach out to say a, a professional in any of industry who is not familiar with hoarding. And that can be something that turns them off. It They totally run the other way because the mental health person doesn't understand what hoarding is. The doctor's like, oh, it can't be that bad. Um, you know, and, and so there's, and I'm not, oh, yeah, can. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just this people run the other way now because they don't know um, what to do or they feel very judged for, oh, you know, you're peeing in a bottle. Like that's not normal. Yeah, clearly it's not, but maybe that's not the response you should give. <laughs> to the right. person who is now finally at a place where they're reaching out for help and I think that's why people back away from getting the help until until it's a crisis point which I have a whole other opinion about that where if we were addressing this earlier and having these conversations earlier in a they in someone's get life to that level of shame right and that and we could be mitigating things versus just pulling up with a dumpster you know, and like you mentioned, the comorbid thing where it's not just one issue, there are other issues. And I see a lot of depression, anxiety, just in the way people respond to the idea that they don't need a hundred purses. Um, maybe 50 is okay. And someone else might say, I don't even have five. But if you look at the whole big picture holistically of what's going on with that specific person, They've just told you 50 stories on why they had these 50 purses that they're going to get rid of. Um, and, and they're going to tell you the 50 stories about the ones they're keeping. But in that process, they are also letting it go. And I have found people are able to let things go if they're given the time and space to talk through it, which if it's in a crisis point, that's not happening, you know? And, and I will say this, so um, I'm not a huge advocate of large-scale cleanouts for many reasons. Um, you know, we know that long-term success 
requires them to build the awareness of doing what we call exposure work. So every time you touch an object and you make a decision, what, what is experienced in the brain of the person who hoards is avoidance due to anxiety. So there's, I actually kind of think of um, when we look at hoarding as being part of the OCD and um, anxiety disorder class, um, it's actually almost like, I say my clients actually like own anxiety at a completely different level. So they code their anxiety as being so significantly high of a risk for their life that they must do everything they possibly can. And not in the same way in OCD that they receive rituals and compulsions, um, but they actually go out of their way to avoid things that the rest of us are uncomfortable. And this is, this is kind of one of the things I try to point out to clients is like, hey, I know this feels uncomfortable. I want to tell you a secret. I don't have a lot of stuff. And those decisions make me uncomfortable too. So there's this coding that that must be avoided at all costs. And so one of the things that I like to do and really pushing into one is reducing shame. It doesn't matter how we got here. It matters how we get out. Um, and one of the things I think that makes people more likely to come to me as a provider is in fact the, the realization that my story and my mother's story are very public. You can go to YouTube, you can go to, actually someone was telling me that the uh, update show of Hoarders that we did in 2012 is, um, is also on YouTube right now. Um, but you can go and see my interactions with my mother, how I view hoarding, how I view clutter. And, you know, um, while I've grown up with a fear that something's going to flip, uh, you know, some switch is going to be flipped in me and I will become like my mother. Um, there's also a deep sense of awareness and compassion of what my mom did was wrong. Absolutely. And, and in fact, as I write the memoir and go back and dig through an adult lens, of these other mitigating experiences from the other parts of her mental health, there were a lot of people who failed, a lot of people. And as an adult trying to make sense of that, that's really hard. And fortunately as a kid, I didn't recognize that those people all were really falling short. But coming back and saying, this was absolutely wrong. Nobody should have to live this way. But to be able to come back and say, but because of my mother's mental illness, she had zero capacity to provide anything else. It doesn't make it okay. It simply says, I'm able to go back and look at and say, of course she did. And so one of the things we see in hoarding is their way of self-soothing when they get into those hard emotions, those distressing emotions, and physiological states, the, you know, hyper arousal, hyper vigilance, you know, the deep breaths, sweaty palms, something bad's going to happen, typical of anxiety, they soothe through acquiring. And, and there is, it's amazing how many of my clients, and I'm guessing you're the same way, come back and say, I know, I, I know I buy too much. I know it. There's, there's no, there's no loss of insight there. Almost universally, everyone, even the ones who really seem to lack other insight, do tell me, I know I buy too many things or I get too many things. 
where they seem to miss it is the avoidance of making a decision and the belief that it's going to feel too bad and I won't be able to bring myself back down. And so we do a lot of removing of shame. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here because you asked me to, and I want to help. You, you set the pace. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you, but you set the pace and teaching them skills so that they know how to soothe themselves in the moment when letting go feels extraordinarily wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually recoding this um, as I'm teaching parents who are second generation, multi-generation in this hoarding disorder and have children. Well, how do you teach your child who's upset about letting go of an item that they're they're making the right decision? And let's let's strike the word right and wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're making a strong decision. And when we say that, um, you know, we kind of conjure up this idea of strengthening a muscle. And in that process, strengthening a muscle, um, and <laughs> as somebody who's recently lost a bit of weight and working on strengthening muscles, it hurts. It hurts and it's tiring. It feels really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I choose to go back and let the trainer tell me, no, you can do five more. No, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. So, so, you know, the idea, so, so when we rescope these ideas as not being right or wrong decisions, but being strong and weaker mm-hmm. and even weaker when we don't say weak, but weaker then we're actually taking that whole shame piece out because now there's no wrong. Right. They're strong and weaker. You know, it's a spectrum Mm -hmm. and, and challenging that what is a strong decision may not feel good. Um, I have kids. I've had uh, quite a few kids. I've been accused of hoarding children. I'm, I'm happy to send mine. All of my adult children have moved (laughs) into their own homes, have their own lives. Like, um, but I digress. Uh, but one of the hardest things was making strong decisions with them in different seasons where I wanted them not to feel, not to feel distress, mm-hmm. but they were causing me distress and coming to the realization that the only strong decision was going to hurt all of us and standing in it and owning it anyways. And, and, that's, and yes, and I'm thinking, of course, this is using right and wrong, but um, choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. And uh, but it makes me think of the how much courage it takes to make that strong decision when you know it, it's, it is going to hurt, period. But you still are in that season where you have to make that strong decision. And for well for me one of the things I had to do was file for a necessary divorce and this was 10 years ago or more but it was for me it was the strong decision and it was the one I needed to make for my survival similar to escaping the horde like I gotta go I gotta get out of here yeah were people like where are you going it doesn't matter I need to get out of here but standing up for that strong decision applies in so many ways you know which which is going to be the one that is going to 
not sacrifice your mental health, which is going to be the one that's going to show this person that you're strong, but they can be too. Like how, and so I think that's a very valuable piece of changing that verbiage of right and wrong. And it, it might hurt now, but it might not hurt so much down the line if you are making that strong decision. And as an example, you know, my, my decision with one of my adult children um, at the age of 18 was not able to live by our expectations. And we'd gone through a season after season after season of another chance. And we made the decision, you know, one day, like you have 48 hours to get out. Mm. And, and that's a hard decision as a parent, Mm -hmm. um, because I knew my child had no resources. And yet, when we presented resources wasn't taking Mm -hmm. the help, and was actually impacting the rest of the family. And so it's kind of this thing where it feels like, well, you shouldn't do that, because you're going to hurt him. Well, you know, he's 21 now. And um, I know for a fact you know, he periodically texts me and says, thank you, mom, for making me suffer in that moment and go through those hard things. And um, I want you to know how much I love you. Mm. And, and that's what we didn't get as kids. We didn't get that people could love us and we could love people even when things didn't work the way we wanted them to. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so it's kind of this interesting thing. It's one of the nuances. It's kind of cool. I've like, I joke about my niche doing just hoarding and family support, but that in fact, the majority of those who I'm working with who have a hoarding diagnosis are in fact, at least a second generation. So they have a parent who has, has had a significant hoarding issue. And so I'm like, it's even more sub niche because, you know, we're talking now about people who recognize their parents' mental illness are doing the same things, mm-hmm. seeing it. So we're talking about somebody who has more insight and still feels unable to get out of it. And this is where compassion is so important. You know, I come back and I say this to clients all the time. It totally makes sense to me. And they're like, they're, you know, this is not what they expect. They expect me to come in and start, you know, with the I can't believe you're making the same parent, you know, right. You saw what it did to your parent. Why aren't you? No, like it makes sense. Why would you become anything else? Because let me tell you what you learn to soothe yourself the same way your parent modeled how they soothe themselves. And you also learned that certain risks were too great to take because of what your parents modeled. There's no value in shame around that. All that shame is going to do is keep you right here in the tension where you hated what your parents did and you swore you would never be like that. And yet you're recognizing you're more alike than different than you ever really wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And so we got to get rid of the shame. We got to bring some compassion in, you know, um, if you were in, I like to use this. So, because language is kind of a, a benign thing, but if you, if you live in China and your parents speak Chinese, who would ever shame you that you don't know how to speak Russian? Right. I, I mean, like that would be ridiculous. If you went down to the pharmacy to get something, nobody would be like, 
what do you mean you don't speak Russian? Right. <laughs> of course I don't speak Russian. Nobody in my house speaks Russian. How would I learn Russian, right? And I think that that's the, also the other cool part of this is that we can learn Russian even if we live in a household and we were raised in an environment where we only learn Chinese. The capacity to break out of that and to learn something different, to become the, the person we want to be. You know, if you're planning to move to Russia, it's probably imperative as a Chinese speaker to learn some Russian mm -hmm. and you can. And here's the reality. If you're raised in an environment where there's abuse, neglect, emotional stuff, mental illness, addiction, whatever it is, because this is actually bigger than just having a parent who hoards. Right. The ability to adapt is there, but just like learning and I'm taking, I got to do a lingo app, guys. I'm learning Spanish uh, and uh, horribly, but I'm trying. Well, later in life that you do this, yes, the harder because you have these patterns ingrained. Um, you know, language we know three to five is kind of a critical period for learning right. language. You get beyond that, it gets more challenging. You get into late life, it gets extremely challenging. The cool thing about emotion is that's not true. We do get more stuck in our patterns, but our capacity to change doesn't. Our brain is able to grow. You know, I think of like when I first took psychology classes in the junior college back in 1998, and we still believed that um, once you had a traumatic brain injury, that you couldn't re regain any of that. And how much we've learned, like actually with adequate support, outside support, let me just be clear. If you're an adult child listening to this, you can get better without your parent, but you're going to need outside support. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You cannot do it on your, uh, uh, you will have more success if you have help. <laughs> I will put it like that. And I, at a period of time when I was going through counseling and therapy, I didn't even address, I didn't even realize the hoarding piece was part of the situation. And I'm in my late thirties at that time going, holy cow, no wonder I have this fear. No wonder I um, I'm constantly purging. No wonder I'm a, I, on Mondays is cleaning day. Like all of those things that I didn't realize started to come clear, but also recognizing that I was an independent person worthy of support outside of my parents' situation or anyone else's. That was one of my greatest aha moments was recognizing I had value aside from any other situation I was encountering. And I don't know that I'd be sitting here today having this conversation had I not gone through some of those very hard, strong <laughs> things in order to be here talking about these things. And it is not, I like to say, if you're in therapy and it's not hurting, you're not doing it right. And I don't mean <laughs> that it's a long-term thing. I mean, if you are traumatized or re-triggered or you have to re-examine some of those things, it's going to hurt. And it, you're going to want some Kleenex. Like you are going to experience almost reliving some of those things. But I kind of also look at it like you go to the dentist they have to get all that stuff out of the tooth, 
all that decay, anything looking kind of wonky before they can come back and say, okay, now we're going to come in and fill this and we're going to, we're going to fix this so you won't be in pain anymore. But in order to get there, you're going to have to get a shot. You're going to have to have your mouth cranked open for like, there are things you have to go through to get to the other side. And personally, I'm not a fan of dental work in any way. So that's like my... <laughs> my go-to when I'm thinking about how am I going to survive this while well, I've survived this other, these other things. And, um, but if you are going into these, going into this to heal, it is going to hurt and it is going to require some strong decisions that other people may not understand. But I can also say sitting on the other side of it, it's so worth it. It's so worth it when you figure out you're valuable and your needs matter. And then you look at what are boundaries? How do I create those? How do I make healthy ones? How do I not push Absolutely. away the important And, and I would I would go so far as to say, and now we do recognize, so I want to be clear here, there are in fact organic brain challenges for mm -hmm. some mental health issues. Absolutely. But the especially for the adult child or for the family member. So the spouse who uh, maybe didn't recognize the warning signs um, for whatever reason, like we all come into relationships with our own stuff. And mm -hmm. some of us, some of us trust our guts. Some of us have been told for long enough that that's not real by other people that when it goes off, we hit mute mm -hmm. and we never go back to see. Um, and so we end up then in a place where we're like, oh my gosh, how did I end up here? Um, this is actually really well documented in um, conversations about alcoholism and family um, family systems, um, which hasn't yet, I mean, I'm integrating it when I work with families. Um, and in fact, when even when I work with those who have a hoarding issue themselves, talking about and raising awareness of how um, I actually do work with some couples and where one has a hoarding issue and one of the conversations we have is the respectful awareness that when one person has a mental illness and is not doing the work, and even when they do the work, that that has an impact on the other person. Mm -hmm. We don't write a check that, well, I have hoarding disorder, so this is just how the house is going to be. Not at all. That's not what I do. Um, and, you know, the conversation then is, okay, but just because you have the disorder doesn't mean that you get to say all of the houses fair game and it's going to be the way we, we have to take into consideration the needs and concerns of others. Um, and so, you know, tying back to the workbook, in fact, that's one of the conversations um, that I asked the adult child who's trying to think this through is who else has concerns? Because sometimes well-meaning, and, and I say this as a, um, this is one of those times where I'm, I'm talking to myself in the mirror as much as I am saying this for anybody else, but I have this well-meaning intention to fix the other person and I'm missing the log in my own eye mm -hmm. and I have to go back and go, okay, why do I need to control this so much? Okay. And release the control. And so one of the questions I ask is, who else is concerned? Because when we're thinking about intervening, there are times where um, something is happening for us as the adult child. Um, and so actually, you know, bringing this really full circle. So in fact, in 1999, my first husband was active duty Air Force. 
we went back to Maryland for 30 days, stayed with his family, but I saw my mom. And one of the things I really tried to do because we were getting ready to go to Japan for four years. Mm. I'm the only child. I'm leaving the country. If crap hits the fan and ha, my mom's house was the first poop house on hoarders. So mm. I can actually use that without being somehow demeaning because mm-hmm. literally the crap hit the fan. Um, but I was attempting to control that situation that summer because something was changing for me. The challenge is nothing had changed really for my mom in that season. And so when we're looking at intervening, we, and oh, this is the part that sucks, we can't do it when it's convenient for us. There are going to be sweet spots for intervention. And sometimes we may have the best intentions, but it's not the right time. And so so the, one of the questions that's asked there in the workbook for, for those who are there considering ahead of time, or maybe crisis is striking, because I wanted it to be friendly enough for that, for pre-planning, but also for those who like, you know, going back, if I could go back to August 28, 2009, what were the questions that might have shaped my decision in a healthier way for me and for my mother? So, you know, there are some questions there that some people may look like, oh, well, she's she's like totally discounting taking care of her mom. No. In fact, being healthy myself has a significant impact on me being healthy for my mom. And it... That- it's about that whole putting your own mask on first. You have to Absolutely. look at how how are you going to be helpful if you can't breathe? How are you going to be helpful if you aren't well taken care of? And that is such a valuable starting point when you're looking at any kind of intervention that you're doing and recognizing where you are at personally is is huge it's it and it's overlooked i think and that's why i think your workbook is great it's a great way to work through those questions um when you're trying to navigate these things yeah and some of the other pieces i think that were really important for me to include were um who else should be involved um so let's say in fact we are in this situation where in fact um, mom, dad now have some insight. They, you know, maybe they've fallen and broken a hip and it's time to come home and they're starting to actually be like, I don't know how I'm going to manage. So maybe we actually are in that sweet spot where there's crisis, their motivation. And let's be clear, their motivation is simply because they're in harm's way. Right. Right. Um, and like, we can all want it to be different, but that's unfortunately true for many, you know, the person who is, um, got depression, chronic depression, low level, you know, what we call dysthemia. And so not significant until they have a suicidal plan and they go to the ER, right? And suddenly now we're really excited about it. So, you know, why didn't we intervene before? Well, because the person didn't give enough indication to do something. Now, now something's big enough. And that's, that's how, like, let's be clear. You don't like going to the dentist, right? (laughs) But I bet when you get to the point where you can't chew, you decide that maybe the uncomfortableness of the dentist is is more beneficial than continuing not to eat, right? Exactly. 
<laughs> so, so I think we have to recognize that there are in fact um, these critical crisis moments that most of our parents have to get to before things are gonna change. Sadly, not everybody gets there. You and I both are parts of adult boards where children talk about, you know, parents who pass away before they ever have insight. And that's, that's really hard. And here's what I want to say, though, to those families, to those adult children, you can still find healing. That, that healing is still available, even if your parent never gets there in their lifetime. If your parent's still living, not at a crisis point, healing is still possible for you, even if they don't have insight. That, I mean, this is the, this is the good news. Um, your friend doesn't have to know that you have a horrible abscess in your mouth for you to recognize you have a problem and to go get help. Right. And in fact, your friend's inability to recognize it has almost no impact in your ability to reach out for help. And so this is where we have to kind of like, okay, how much is this impacting me? So coming back, who else needs to be involved? So this is a hard piece. I know a lot of, there's a lot of conversations about um, failures of agencies. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this cautiously because in fact, I'm a mandatory reporter um, and I do make reports um, ethically that's and legally a requirement, but I do it in a way that I can, can, can maintain my client's trust. And this is something I think that families miss is that making a CPS call when you know that your niece or nephew is living in a home where they don't have clean sheets and a bed that they can access is not a bad thing to do. And in fact, we do more harm to those children by holding allegiance to our our family member who's not doing the right thing to take care of themselves and their children. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that I think CPS gets it right, (laughs) but I think we have to step up more often. We have to speak up for those who don't have a voice. And I know that you know this, when you're a child living in a hoarding environment, you don't have a voice about much. You are overran basically with any needs or desires or like it, it you just don't matter as much as that situation and something I learned very young was don't move things and people would say why don't you clean it up because if I move it <laughs> there's a massive meltdown and even as a teenager I, I remember putting up a Christmas tree on top of the stuff because I couldn't move the stuff but I could put up the tree that was okay um, and, and so, uh, you know, like, which always, anyway, that was just very irritating to me. Like nobody else just puts their tree on top of their, you know, dog bed or whatever. They move the stuff so that you can put up the tree. Um, and in fact, for me, I really always thought one day I'll have my own house and I can put up my own decorations and no one's going to tell me I can't. Um, and so I did that for years, um, with kind of that attitude, I'm going to decorate how I want. Now I'm more like, do I really want to deal with all that? (laughs) Um, But yeah, just that idea that you, you can heal, you can find a way. I think, I don't know if we're ever done healing. I think it's a continual journey, but I think you can do, 
you can do that despite anything else. You can choose to do something different and you don't have to repeat it. it. It does, you can know what you know, but you don't have to repeat it. And I, in my family, so my, my mom had a hoarding issue. So did my dad, different things, but her mom, uh, both aunts and the great grandma. So it is very much an intergenerational pass down thing. And I have seen this, I guess it's a meme, but I think there's a lot of truth to it that when you start healing you, you're healing those past generations and, and not because you can go change it, but because you are doing what you can to not repeat it and not pass it down and not give it to someone else. And calling CPS, by the way, is something I agree, not agencies are huge. They need a lot of training and help and things to figure these things out. But if you don't call, what kind of benefit are you giving that kid? And we had them show up when I was seven. They showed up again when I was 17. So there's this 10 year gap of we're living in hell basically. And what's happening? Nothing. Um, but it's, I think there's a, something to be said about building that case where you are calling someone else calls you and I have been a mandatory reporter in my life and had to make those calls as, as well. But I think it's also important to let people know, hey, I have to call. I am calling because of XYZ. However, I'm calling because of XYZ, not because you're a horrible person or any of the other shameful things. It's this is the situation. This is my requirement. This is why I'm doing it. And I think transparency is something that is helpful to have people's trust and to let them know this is what's happening. Yeah. And I want to add this piece because I know, um, I know that there's going to be a bunch of adult children listening to this. So I want to add this piece. The, the idea of, so how I run this is that um, the only time I'm not giving a client the opportunity to hear what is being communicated to that report is when we're actually looking at those um, extreme safety. If you tell me, Tammy, that you're going to, you know, go kill somebody, guess what? You don't get the benefit of me having you sit there present while I call 911. Right. You just don't. My practice is, and, and this is really important, I think, because of those second generation, third generation people who are struggling, who are like, oh, if I work with Cece, she's going to make a CPS report. report. Um, I want it to be clear here. Reporting in and of itself is not a mandatory reporting situation. The same is true. I work with a lot of seniors. The same is true with adult protective services. Um, I will tell you this. When I make a report to APS, they take my report more seriously than most other reports because they, in fact, know that I get that hoarding conditions clutter do not necessarily mean that we have a significant safety, health, or self-neglect issue. That if, in fact, I'm reaching out, there are these mitigating factors. So a CPS report um, is going to happen when we have significant health and safety issues. Right. 
if you're a second generation, third generation, if this is kind of the cycle of what your family has taught and modeled for you and your house is cluttered, but your children have access to food, they have access to clothing, they're able to sleep in their beds, they're able to bathroom and toilet in a clean, safe environment, I almost don't care how much clutter there is. If they can get out in the fire, where we start to get concerned is no running water. Now I get, you know, this isn't a poverty thing, but we, we look at some cultural things when there's no running water because the clutter has kept a family from having repairs. When there's no ability to prepare healthy, nutritious food or to store healthy, nutritious food in the home. When a child is forced to sleep um, on a pile of boxes and things, when they don't have access to clean clothes, um, adequate clothing, there's not adequate health, um, not health, but um, heating and cooling in a home. This is where then we start to have these reports. Um, ironically, and this is one of those pieces that really, uh, the tension, how do we fix it? I don't even know. Emotional abuse is not a reportable CPS issue. When we're looking there, we're looking at physical and sexual abuse and neglect. Which so, becomes emotional or is it emotional. Does. It is, but when we, when we have an absence of those other pieces, um, it's, you know, you can say some really horrible things to your kids um, and have a really clean house and I can even witness it and I don't have to report it. I may cry. I will probably send up thoughts for intervention at a level that I can't make happen. Um, I may, if I'm really gutsy one day, just call you out and say, what do you, what do you think this is achieving? And I kind of fall on the side of there needs to be a look at how is this emotionally affecting that kid and what, how is that going to lend to his or her lack of self-esteem or are they going to become bullies themselves because of that emotional thing? And so I, and I think there's a need to look at that more as far as like the ACEs with the early childhood um, abuse or things that you go through, like how is that going to impact you down the line? And um, I think that's part where part of that conversation needs to happen is, hey, this is also something that we should be looking at. And I think that down the line, that that's part of that conversation that needs to happen as far as what is self-neglect? What is a, like, what exactly is that? And do we have it right? Do we need to look at different definitions? Do we need to look at stronger verbiage? What is it so that people can actually get the help they need sooner. Yeah, and I'm actually really hopeful. Um, Dr. Suzanne Chabot is actually a huge advocate for early intervention. Mm -hmm. um, so with some shift in the hoarding research, um, so we're actually, so, you know, when, when all of this first came about with my mom and I was reading everything I could get my hands on, and I had conversations with all of the big experts because I was asking them to send me their journal articles that I didn't have access to for free. Mm -hmm. So just a, if you're if you're looking for an article and you can find it on Google Scholar or whatever, but it says it's only abstracts, there's always an email address 
email the first person on that, they will almost always send you that article for free. So just there's your, there's your big research tip for the day. Um, <laughs> but so I've had conversations with lots of these, you know, researchers and experts. But so there's this, this shift now of we knew from about 2012, 13, that in fact, we're seeing hoarding disorder really starting to develop in early adolescence. So eight, 13, 14, 15. So we see that as being kind of this sweet spot where these behaviors start to develop and manifest. And so because of that, now we have research and treatment really trying to identify the child in the home um, and start care quickly. Um, and I will say, I have a kiddo that I definitely think um, without, without enough coaching and support, probably could find themselves on the spectrum someday. You know, um, that if we don't develop other healthy coping skills and challenge them to take on their mind and the stories that their mind tells them um, could, in fact, end up there. Um, but we set boundaries, uh, you know, so we have a clear definition of what is trash and we don't keep trash. Um, so, you know, I'll be really honest, walk into their room on any given day, um, the number of days that it's been that I love it is very few. Um, however, you know, uh, finding a balance of firm boundaries. These are things that are trash and we don't save those. They right. have to be removed regularly. Um, and, you know, making sure, you know, let's move the trash can. Maybe it's, a, I mean, this is one of the most funny and significant things I've learned working with my mom in absence of additional support was the importance of a carefully placed trash can. So after we got her moved, got her really well managed, we went through this season where the facility was calling me all the time that things were getting out of control. And they'd been really good for a while. And so I was kind of baffled, like, what's happening for my mom? Like, why is, why is this changing? And it turns out they had a new caregiver that was working with her and a new housekeeper. And the housekeeper had moved her trash can. It's amazing how something that simple can yep. just totally detract from any progress you've made. Yep. And so, so we actually, you know, so then I'm coming as the family member and saying, don't move, don't you dare move this trash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't quite threatening, but I said, Hey, um, here's our history. This placement of this trash can is crucial to keeping what you're seeing from happening. Mm -hmm. So I get that you think it's inconvenient, but it's, you're actually like, get over it. Like this needs to be here. And so, and so, you know, this is one of those things where we set boundaries right. and, and that's something that's hard because, and this is, uh, you know, this is so interesting. Boundaries actually put us at risk of abandonment and rejection. Mm -hmm. And so, especially when we haven't felt a self awareness that we matter and in our childhood homes, like you said, we came after all the things. Mm -hmm. So so we may have had some times where mom and dad said some kind words. They praised us for our straight A's. Oh, you did so great at that. But they also, like you said, you move something. You learn not to move it. Because if you did, you'd be the, you'd be the, uh, the whipping post for verbal lashing of how dare you? What were you thinking? And all of this. And so you learned, your mind said, I'm worth less than these things. Now, I may have these times where mom and dad are proud of me and say really kind things, 
But in this hierarchy, I'm less important than, um, I don't know about you, in my world, the thing that I was definitely less important than repeatedly was the Joanne's fabric flyer. My mom was a crafter. And in the 90s, they had 40% off coupons. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you how many times I would accidentally move one or, or even better, um, there were times where I knew I hadn't touched it. She had misplaced it, put it down somewhere she couldn't remember. Um, but guess what? Nothing was her fault. So I got, got the blame. <laughs> I got the blame. I got the verbal, the verbal assault for how dare you do this? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing. I don't remember where I was going with this, but. Well, and I think <laughs> the, the verbal piece of it is, it's the thing that you replay in your mind. All the other things can fall away and you still can hear it or you can, a, a tone of voice, I can see it or a look mm-hmm. like I can totally, it, you're instantly right back in that moment. And so I think that that kind of ties into the whole, it's, there is emotional blackmail i guess even if it's not abuse there is this emotional component to these i would say with the mental illness or any of those things there is this verbal piece that you that's tied into all that and you similar to if someone has is very inebriated they don't remember what they've said and so but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt if you heard it so um i think watching your words watching your boundaries and i'm not and i totally get the placement of the trash can because it, it's it, and it's altering their environment and the other thing i found is you could leave it where it is and add another one they don't care necessarily if you add another one but don't move that one um right. and so um but i also am seeing now in my own life where as we are working on clearing out a lot of the hoarded space on the property where i grew up um a lot of those things come into play well it's okay if it takes a little longer for that to happen because i'm trying to not have a meltdown um i'm trying to avoid that for that other person not that i'm gonna have one i personally would love to have a dumpster but i am cognizant of the fact that i'm trying to work around a person who still is willing but struggles and so anyway i I can see where we can advocate for our clients and I can see how we also need to advocate for ourselves. And that is what I think is very value, valuable about what you bring to it um, because you do see this on a bigger scale and you see it from different perspectives and points of view. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us and share your your perspective on this and knowing you're a resource, knowing that you understand this in a, in a greater way, I think is very great. So um, I don't know if you're selling the workbook or if, if it's on your website, but just if people want to get in touch with you, how do they, what's the best way to do that? So right now, best way to do that is to reach out to me through the website, which is ccgarrett.com and cc is C-E-C-I, Garrett, one G, two R's, ett.com and you can go there and it is a free workbook so in exchange for your email address and i will not spam you that is not my intent um you you can get access to a substantial workbook and and you know the take a view of it you know it's uh, i believe 
when it was formatted, we ended up with 28 pages. Um, now that does include a little bit of an introduction that just helps you understand the lens and experiences that I bring to this. Um, it's actually, I think, a workbook that very few people could have created because I do have lived experience of being a child in one of these environments. I have experience in a, sim a setting similar to what you do. We're doing in-home services. Um, no longer doing that, um, but also now as a clinician who specializes in hoarding disorder and also this really unique space um, for extended family and my mom have given me permission to share my story. And there's still a lot of families where they don't have that. Maybe, maybe mom and dad have started to recognize that there's a problem, but it's still a secret. Um, and, and extended family is horrified, mortified, embarrassed, ashamed, whatever. And that, you know, that's kind of this family systems view right. of these problems. And so I mean, this really unique space of my story is all over the place because I have this gift that my family has given me that they support me in my cycle breaking. And so um, you can kind of find out a little more about me. But so the workbook is really written out of this um, unique body of experience that we don't see many places. Um, and, and I made it free because what I believe is that I need to be a good steward of my experience and that the person who needs this workbook the most desperately may be in a financial position like I was. I didn't, we didn't make a mortgage payment when my mom gets sick so that we could go begin the process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a decision we made. We own our decision, but I don't want to add to anybody's situation, a burden on that. So you can, in fact, go download the workbook for free. I'm going to ask for your email. You know, like I said, I'm not going to spam you. Um, but the other piece that I do is that um, sometimes, you know, you, I give a little feedback there, but it may be that the situation you feel really overwhelmed that you're not sure you're integrating. So I do offer family consultation. Um, I'm not currently taking new therapy clients. Uh, right now, but I do have family consultation available. Um, listeners today, uh, you know, I will send you the code, but there is a code to save $25 off of a hour family consultation. Family consultation is you coming with this information about what the situation is, what you know about your parents' mental health and other factors. And we go through and walk through that. And then based on my experience, this decade of arduous labor, um, compassionate attempts to help alleviate others suffering and my own and bring that to you and say, okay, here's the things I want you to think about. Here are my recommendations and how can I support you in taking whatever that next step may be? Even if that next step is to say, mom and dad, I'm not the one who's going to help you. I can't. And it's a step backwards. And that's actually a valid place. There may be some who, in fact, make the decision to step forward. And, you know, I can I can do other supports there. But so I do have family consultation available. Get that information at the website as well. And I will make that link for family consultation scheduling available to you so that you can post it as well. Um, but yeah. And, you know, some of the, one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to balance in my own healing process um, the ability to give hope and to extend a, a, a hand, a branch, if you would. I feel like we're siblings, even though we don't have you know, necessarily blood relatives. Um, 
but extending a, a healed branch to help support others and what that looks like in the sense of um, in a therapeutic sense, we can only see, you know, for me, that's about 12 clients at a time. Um, I get the need is so much bigger than the 12 people that I can help. And so one of the things I'm looking for, so if you go to the website, you can also just sign up for the basic information to get updates, is developing programs that are going to create um, kind of a more, I don't want to say manualized, but a, a more guided process to beginning personal healing, no matter where you are, whether your parents in crisis, whether you have children who are also now starting to show symptoms, whether you have your own challenges with clutter and decision-making, maybe you don't, maybe you're like me and you just have this niggling worry button that you can't seem to ever turn off <laughs> and, you know, generalized anxiety, maybe you have some depression that, you know, you fighting through, but you are still depressed. You know, there are things that you can do um, when you're in those functional levels still. And so continuing to work on what that looks like, making it something where I'm not the one carrying the secrets and the keys, making them available to help, to help the body, the other branches, because once we have more strong branches, we can offer healing to more people. Exactly. And that, and learning how to get that strength is definitely the key, I would say, to, to this. So I appreciate your resources, and I invite people to come and visit your website, ccgarrett.com, and I will put links to all that um, in the show notes as well, so that you all can reach out to CC um, and, you know, be involved with part of the solutions that we're trying to create. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you again for the opportunity to share with your listeners. If you or a loved one has a hoarding problem, let's work together on a solution. 